In the just concluded first round of presidential elections in France, President Macron and a far-right candidate Marie Le Pen emerged as the top two contenders and will face each other in a runoff. These candidates have employed Islamophobic rhetoric and do not hide their anti-Muslim sentiments. How did Islamophobia emerge as a central feature of European politics? Why is there little to distinguish between center and far-right candidates when it comes to Islam and Muslims? Assalamu alaikum and greetings. Welcome to episode 6 of Islam on the Edges channel of the Maidan podcast, a project by the Ali Wural Ak Center for Global Islamic Studies at George Mason University in Virginia. In this outstanding episode, I host Dr. Farid Hafiz, class of 1955 visiting professor of international studies at Williams College in Massachusetts. In this episode, Dr. Hafiz and I discuss the mainstreaming of Islamophobia in European politics. We talk about the neo-Nazis and their relationship with Islamophobia and anti-Muslim sentiments in Europe. Dr. Hafiz traces the European government's attempts to create officially sanctioned versions of Islam, be they French, German, or Austrian. The control over Muslim discourse in Europe often leads to the securitization of Muslims. They are viewed through a security lens, either as a security threat or as potential allies in the fight against terrorism. This approach necessarily leads to a good versus bad Muslim dichotomy in the European mind. Another dimension is the racialization of Muslims. In Austria, for instance, there are long-standing Muslim communities dating back to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, primarily from Bosnia and Herzegovina, which the Austro-Hungarians occupied in 1878. As a result of the Muslim presence, the Austrian state adopted the so-called Islam law in 1912, recognizing Muslims as a religious community within the empire. Primarily, the goal was to domesticate Bosniaks and Bosnian Muslims and distance them from the Ottoman state and traditions. This law that was passed in 1912 was replaced by a new Islam law in 2015 under the pretext of fighting terrorism. Dr. Hafiz and I discussed this and many other issues in this episode. And a word about our guest. Dr. Farid Hafiz is class of 1955, visiting professor of international studies at Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. He's also a center associate at the Bridge Initiative at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Hafiz has a Ph.D. in political science from the University of Vienna, Austria. He is affiliated with several prestigious research centers and universities in the United States and abroad. He is the author of several books in English and German, including Islam-Related Politics in Europe, which is forthcoming with Rutgers University Press. Dr. Hafiz has edited several books and collected volumes and serves as one of the editors of European Islamophobia Reports and Islamophobia Studies Yearbook. A prolific author, he has published close to 100 articles and chapters in various peer-reviewed journals and edited volumes. We hope you will enjoy our discussion. Farid, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, it's a pleasure. I wanted to start first by asking you a general question. Tell us a little bit about your work researching Islamophobia and anti-Muslim discrimination in Europe. Mm. 
Well, I mean, all of that started basically when, you know, when I was a PhD student in political science back in Vienna and Austria, there was this feeling that was around like 2007 to 2009, that a lot was going on in terms of Islamophobia, but nobody really talked about it. And that's why when, when I felt like there is some need really on behalf of academics to speak out and to analyze and, and to have a discussion on that issue. So that was actually, I mean, the way how I started uh, becoming interested in that. And that was still, you know, at a time when especially in, 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 in many European continental countries, there was not really a lot of a discussion, academic output, whatever, on the whole issue of Islamophobia. So my, my PhD was basically very much, I, I was doing a critical discourse analysis on parliamentary debates on the ban of mosques and minarets in different uh, Austrian states. And, you know, then one thing followed the other. I started the Islamophobia Studies yearbook back in 2010. Then in 2015, I became the co-editor of a new institution that we established, which was called the European Islamophobia Report, which is a collective effort of more than 35 to 40 authors uh, every year, where we not only monitor, but analyze also uh, what is going on in, uh, in terms of Islamophobia in more than 30 European countries. So that has been in place since 2015. We now just finishing up the sixth uh, volume of this annual project. And in 2017, I started working for the Bridge Initiative at Georgetown University, which is dedicated to understanding and talking about Islamophobia in the, in the public square, where I actually at the first time in my life became affiliated to an institution professionally working on Islamophobia because everything else before was basically a hobby. Uh, it was just like my, my personal dedication, right? And not really being paid for anything of that work that I had been doing so long. Yeah, that's, that's really good. So now, how many of these annual reports have you published? Well, the Islamophobia Studies Yearbook, we are um, currently finishing the 12th volume. And the European Islamophobia Report, that's now the sixth being out. Yeah. All right. So we can't really talk about Islamophobia without also talking about the secretarization of Muslims in, mm -hmm. in Europe in general. So how do different European countries promote the secretarization of Islam and Muslims? Well, I think, um, I mean, in terms of understanding Islamophobia, I think there are different angles from which you can look at the whole issue. On one side, I think what is very crucial for understanding the European state of Islamophobia is the rise of the far right, which started already in the 80s and 90s in most Western European countries. And that was very much related to the political parties trying to find new ways of approaching all the problems and also the immigration of people of color into Europe. The far right, when it, when it became more of an, let's say, a successful political party in electoral terms, that was at the beginning very much tied to, the, to a general question of racism and the culturalization of socioeconomic problems. And it only turned to become the so-called Muslim problem in the late 1990s. And that then obviously with 9-11, that was an, an, another booster for this movement. Uh, so I think that's one side of how to, how to approach understanding the position of Muslims today in Europe. The other side, I think, is when with 9-11, what happened with the global war on terror, 
is something that we have witnessed even going beyond Europe, what you just call the securitization of Muslims. So this whole idea of problematizing Muslim identity uh, as being something of a security threat and thus approaching the whole issue of Islamic Muslims, not from the angle of freedom of religion, but rather of internal security. And therefore, you know, creating all of this vocabulary of radicalization, extremism, and uh, uh, subsequently also introducing a lot of legislation that is actually targeting Muslims through the lens of the security threat. Obviously, that also intermingles with issues of religion politics. And I think that's the interesting thing if, you know, from, an, from a U.S. American perspective, where you have a secular understanding of a full separation of state and religion, the European perspective might look a little bit awkward because in, in European countries, though so there are different regulations of the relationship of state and, and church or religion, in most of the countries, if we leave aside France as a, a very exception of this uh, more uh, European way of how to deal with religion and politics, you do have in many countries legally recognized churches and denominations, right? So there is not a full separation in the American sense of church and state power, but there is a way of a cooperation between state authorities and religions. And that's especially the case for countries like Germany, Austria, and others, where we speak of the cooperative model. That's how it's called by legal scholars. Then obviously also have some countries where the state and the religion is one and the same, right? Like the British model, for instance. But in terms of the Muslim issue, I think what is interesting here is that from 2005, 6, 7 on, we could observe a tendency where European states basically tried to create their own domestic form of Islam. So we had the French Islam, which also Macron now is pushing very hard for, the Dutch Islam, the German Islam, Italian Islam, whatever Islam. And the, the authority that was mainly behind these efforts was the Ministry of Interior in all of these cases. So you could clearly see that while, let's say, the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church or the Jewish community is approached by mostly the culture of uh, the Ministry of Cultural Affairs, when it comes to the Muslim issue, it's the Ministry of Interior. And that shows you very much where this, where this journey uh, started and where it's going, right? Um, it's, again, through the lenses of security, uh, looking at Muslims through the lenses of a security threat, and at the very same time, trying to create a domesticated version and in a way disciplining Muslims to be, in a way, as I would call it, observant, if not submissive subjects that basically do not question anything that is going on in these countries. So, so I, I think that is the way how I would put it. Yeah, that's very interesting. You mentioned the rise of the far right in Europe, and obviously that also happened in Austria. So can you tell us, since you are from Austria and you come from that country, can you tell us a little bit about the rise of the far right in Austria and the most recent issues surrounding securitization of Islam in Austria, including, for instance, Kurtz, who was, um, I understand, is at the end of his political life, at least for now, 
tell us a bit about the rise, his rise in politics, and how did that impact Muslims? Well, I mean, uh, Austria, I think, in, is in, very, in, in many senses uh, a very interesting case. Why? Because on one side, Austria was the first country back then in the EU 15, when the European Union had 15 member states only, where we had a far-right political party becoming part of a, co- a coalition government. And if we think back, like we, we remember, what happened then was that actually the other EU 14 member states boycotted Austria for that reason. So we can see like 20 years back, they, they won the elections, they became the second uh, largest party in 1999 and formed a coalition government in 2000. So 20 years ago, having a far-right party even being part of the power structures was, was unbelievable, right? How could Austrians just do that? So, I mean, this whole boycott, that it did not last uh, for more than a few months, but nevertheless, this reaction was so different to what we're witnessing today, right? We, we have, uh, like, 17 years later, we had a minister of interior and vice chancellor, vice prime minister, uh, uh, prime minister Salvini in in Italy. We had the far right again in Austria, and in so many other countries, uh, the far right was part and parcel of the of the new normal political landscape. So Austria, in that case, is interesting because it definitely had a pioneering role in mainstreaming and normalizing the far right in everyday politics. So that's one aspect. The other aspect I think which is also interesting in a, in a more international politics perspective is Jörg Haider, who was the famous leader of the far right in Austria. When his party became a part of the coalition, he as a person was not allowed to enter Israel. Why? Because obviously for the Israeli uh, state, he was linked, historically speaking, to the Nazi system. So because the far-right party, the, the, the Freedom Party, is at the end of the day, uh, when it was established, it was nothing else but uh, the representation of the ex-Nazis. It was a party for ex-Nazis, from ex-Nazis. So that's also, I think, a very interesting shift that we could see, because, again, 10 years later, a lot of far-right parties would align themselves with Israel. They would have official visits to Israel. So this mainstreaming of the far-right also happened at the backdrop a lot of Islamophobia. Why? Because the strategic shift that the far-right made was from the in the 80s, 90s, you had a lot of far-right parties saying like, very blatant anti-Semitic stuff in the public. And that was also one of the problems that the far right had because, you know, the whole image that they represented was like, these are old fascists. Nobody really wants to vote for them. But then when they made this strategic shift to changing from an anti-Semitic profile to an Islamophobic profile and also connecting Islamophobia to like, we are defending multicultural Europe or uh, LGBTQI community or the Jewish community, you know, that really helped the far right to become a successful political party in various European countries. And I think on another note, this also helped actually to align those far-right parties with the Republican Party in the United States. Because again, if we go back 20 years ago, no Republican politician would align himself with 
drink have a coffee in the public with a far-right guy. Now, when Trump was in power, that was the golden age of the far-right, when you had all of these alignments, Israel, the European far-right, and the Republican Party in the United States. So you can really see through the lens, uh, looking through the history of Islamophobia, how that really shifted the whole political landscape, even on a global scale. So again, going back to Austria and the rise of the far right, one of the things that happened was, and you can trace that really back like uh, in, in, the, in the party platforms and, and the policies that were implemented, what, what happened was that the centrist right parties, and this is what Sebastian Kurz represents, the Austrian People's Party, which is a Christian democratic uh, centrist right party, they basically co-opted step-by-step the policy claims, the Islamophobic policy claims of the far right. And this is uh, what we could clearly see in Austria, where the far right actually did not start implementing and adopting an anti-Muslim platform after 9-11, but rather after 2005 when they split from the government. So the time they were not anymore in charge of governmental politics and they went back into opposition, that was really the date when they... Uh, decided we're going to run on an anti-Muslim platform. Islamophobia actually helped them to move from the far right to the center. And in a way, Islamophobia was centered as one of the main political platforms of even the mainstream political parties in in Austria. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and that that happened, let's say, 10 years later, around 10 years later. But I, I think there is a crucial difference between the centrist right adopting Islamophobia and the far right. Because the far right, you know, most of the far right folks, they are marginal political parties. Most of the time, they are not in a position of responsibility because they are not in government. Their idea of how to deal with Muslims is very superficial. They're basically saying, we want to have them out. Just bring them out of the country. But that's not a realistic option, right? Because in most European countries, as it is the case in Austria, a large part of the Muslim population has citizenship. So you can't just like kick them out of the country. So the centrist right has a different take on that. Their idea is not to chase Muslims out of the country, but rather their idea is to change what Islam means for Muslims. So what they did is, on one side, they built institutions. You know, they like pushed for Islamic theology departments at state universities, uh, creating new institutions to create a whole discourse around what the future of Islam should look like. In many ways, the way they presented that was not like, we are against Muslims. It's like, we want to save Muslims from the bad ones. Yeah, so it was a clever way how even to approach that in the public. They could not be like criticized for, yeah, you are against Islam as such. No, because the way they presented it was in a way a liberal uh, uh, framing of of their Islamophobia. So um, what they did, and I think, you know, in in analytical uh, terms, what they stand for is basically a way to create a European notion of Islam, 
Um, and that, again, has a very long colonial history, right? We know that yeah. like, for most of the colonial empires, even though those Muslims were not in Europe, they would speak of, yeah, you have to Europeanize your Islam, which basically means for them, don't have any political opposition, uh, don't question our state of the art, don't question our power structures, be submissive uh, citizens, and, and then we're fine. As long as you, as you don't question anything, you're good citizens, yeah? And that's what we want from you. Also, I mean, honestly speaking, that works in a lot of European countries because a lot of Muslim institutions, would, they would also say, okay, let us live, we're going to let, let you live, uh, and we're fine, right? Don't intermingle into our affairs. But I think the project or the, or the centrist right even goes further in that they really want to change, uh, like in, even in theological terms, they want to create their own version of Islam. And I think that's really the dangerous part also of that. Yeah, so so the state intervenes in that whole process and injects itself fully into the theological conversation of what Islam is and should be and uses all of these new initiatives like opening, like you said, theological departments and faculties or trainings for imams and teachers and whatnot in order to say this is the state-approved version of Islam which you can teach publicly, this is the good, the right Islam that is acceptable within this context. Right. And the state defines what that is. That's really fascinating. Now, Farid, you know that our channel is called Islam on the Edges, and Austria had been just outside the edges of traditional Islam, as you know, of course, yeah. going all the way back to the, you know, the siege of Vienna and all of that, and the history that it had. And then because of its proximity to the Ottoman Empire and with the collapse of the Ottomans and their retreat from Europe, some of the areas that were heavily populated by Muslims came under the dominion of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, right? And that necessitated creation of first laws in Austria on Islam. So can you tell us a little bit about that? I know you researched it. You even had a grant with our center on this particular topic. So maybe tell us a little bit about when did that happen and, and, and how did that law accommodate Muslims and Islam within the Austro-Hungarian Empire? I mean, I think that's a fascinating his, uh, story because a lot of people are not aware of that. As you're saying, it's on the edges, right? It's also interesting in, in so many other ways because even the way how Muslims today in Austria and especially Bosnia, Muslims of Bosnian origin, which are like around 20, more than 20% of the whole Muslim population in ethnic terms, they also, their imagination of the role of the Bosnians within this whole Austrian construction of Islam is very interesting. So let me start with, I mean, obviously when the Austria-Hungarian Empire occupied Bosnia and Herzegovina in 1878, they took the lands where you had a majority uh, or a large group of Muslims living there. I mean, the immediate reaction was obviously because Bosnia was back then still part of the Ottoman Empire before. And so these lands were given to the Austrians because of the Berlin Conference. W what happened was that the Bosnian Muslims, obviously they fought the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. There were more than 150,000 Bosnian Muslims that even fled to the Ottoman Empire because for them it would not be doable to resign in a place which is not under Muslim rule. That's what, That was their perspective back then, right? And one of the interesting aspects in terms of the religion politics was obviously that the religious authority was tied to the Ottoman Empire. 
It was tied to the caliphate, right? And what the Austrians wanted at the beginning was to say, okay, well, symbolically, you can still align yourselves with the Ottomans, but in structural terms, you're under our control. And that is what the Austrian Empire managed actually over the, the, the course over the next decades, uh, managed to fulfill, to put everything under Austrian control. So although they, they accepted the people that were elected to become the highest religious authorities, what the Austrians wanted is that this is done formally under the governance of the, of the empire. And they succeeded in that. I mean, there so, was so in a way the, the, the emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire became the new caliph for the Muslims. <laughs> yeah, in a way, in a way. So Menshura, as it was called in in Bosnia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we have also in the Catholic Church, right? So it's like the Pope gives you the allowance to become the cardinal or a bishop or whatever. That happened now should happen not with the with the caliph but rather with the austrian and hungarian empire so i mean there were a lot of struggles also between different muslim uh, camps within within bosnia and herzegovina but i think what what is really crucial then for the austrian side of the history is in 1909 you had a way of legally recognizing this muslim community that led to the uh, so-called Islam Act of 1912, uh, shortly before the First World War break, broke out. What is interesting with that is because of the Islam Act of 1912 and because then the First Republic and then the Second Republic in 1945 basically incorporated all of this religious uh, religion law, uh, which was part and parcel also of the liberalization of the religious infrastructure because it was not only anymore the Catholic Church that was dominant in in the Habsburg monarchy, but you also had the legal recognition of the Jewish community, of smaller uh, Christian churches, especially also of the Protestant church. So you had a diversification of a legal recognition of different churches and religious societies, and the Muslims basically were one amongst them. So the interesting thing is here that this helped Muslims after 1945 to go back to this uh, legal framework and say, okay, we are part and parcel of this history, right? We are legally recognized. So please give us an, uh, an ability here to structure ourselves in order to be also, again, legally recognized as it used to be back in the Habsburg monarchy. And, and I mean, th- that's interesting in many ways, because on one side, you did not have any other European countries post-1945, post-World War II, where, where Islam was legally recognized. Like, you then, then uh, I think you had the, the case also in Belgium and in Spain to some extent. But in Western Europe, Austria was actually a unique case. So what happened, the, the first Muslim immigration basically started with Bosnian Muslims who fled the communist regime in the 1950s. Uh, for late 1940s and 50s. And then you had uh, the t- uh, immigration coming from Turkey in the 60s. So what these populations did, and obviously, which should also not be for- forgotten, is uh, a lot of Arab Muslim st- students who came uh, with the independence and, and the post-colonial states after the 1950s. So those Muslims were the ones who then reorganized the Muslim community based on the Islam Act of 1912. 
So what happened was that Bruno Kreisky, the longtime social democratic chancellor, uh, who had a lot of friendship with a lot of the Muslim world, he was the first to give the PLO uh, an embassy in in the world, right? In back in Vienna, the OPEC was uh, got their headquarters also in Vienna. So there was a lot of soft diplomacy going on uh, between Austria and the Muslim world. So they r- realized the Islam Act could help us. So that's why in 1979, they then recognized the Islamic Religious Society based on the Islam Act of 1912. And that actually helped Muslims a lot to reorganize themselves and give themselves a status equivalent to a lot of other religious uh, societies and churches. What I think is interesting in terms of uh, the Bosnian history is, on one hand, even the far right recognized that Bosnian white, and I think that's really important, white Muslims, European Muslims, they had kind of a special status. And they were regarded as, you know, on one hand, they are the moderate Muslims, they are the good Muslims. And, you know, that's also how they shifted then their discourse when they became anti-Muslim. They were not necessarily anti-Muslim in being anti-Bosnian white Muslims, but rather in being anti-immigrant, you know, black, brown, black and brown Muslims. So there is racialization taking place also. Absolutely. So I think that that really also helped uh, the far right, you know, to have a a bit also of a nuanced perspective on on how they deal with these issues. But, you know, at the same time, this helped them in questioning the whole status of Muslims in Austria, because their argument in 2008, when they published a major position paper on the role of Muslims in Austria, they would say, we should not give the status of Bosnian autochthonous native European Muslims to the others. So, basically, so almost they, like the Islam Act of 1912 should apply only to Bosnian Muslims because right. they are outstanding European and all of these like newcomer Muslims, they should be treated differently. Is that what right. it is? Yeah, that was their core argument. And, and what happened was that when the, when the centrist right co-opted this agenda and they uh, implemented a new Islam Act in 2015, that they actually fully restructured the whole relationship between uh, the state authorities and the Muslim community in a way that is not existing in with any other church or religious uh, or religious community. Yeah, so I, I wanted to ask you about that. So we had that 1912 Islam Act in Austria, which obviously served as a foundation for later Muslim presence in the country where they could say, look, we've been recognized, we just want our rights, it's part of the Austrian law. But then then, uh, the state almost felt as if that law was maybe too generous to Muslims or maybe they wanted new interventions. So tell us about this more recent law on Islamic communities in Austria and why it created such controversy. I mean, there is a lot to say about this law because, I mean, it has, first of all, it has a lot of articles and uh, uh, paragraphs, so we could have like a whole session about that. But I think, you know, I mean, to put it in a nutshell, I think the really, really the two dramatic shifts that we could see, which seem to some people in in a way paradox even, 
But I think it makes pretty much sense for the whole new generation of leadership, for the Austrian leadership with Sebastian Kurz, but also for the Muslim leadership with new people coming into power there. What happened was two things. On one hand, the state grew in its authority and its possibility to intervene vis-a-vis the Islamic religious society. So the Islam Act of 2015 gave the state a lot more powers to have a say in the agendas of the Islamic authority. To give you a few examples, the chancellor has the power to dissolve any legal entity of the Islamic religious community. So he does not have the power to do that with any church or any other religious community. So everything that has to be changed, for instance, if, if, if uh, the constitution, which is an internal affair of the Islamic religious authority, should be changed, it has to be accepted by the chancellor. So that is a direct intervention, uh, uh, power of intervention he has. So that's one thing. So strengthening the position of the state vis-a-vis the community. On the other hand, what also happened is prior to 2015, most of the Muslim communities were organized based on the law of association, which is not related to any religious uh, legislation. So it's like every citizen or non-citizen even in Austria has the right to form an association. All right, so it's something like non-profits in the United States. Yeah, a non-profit organization. And it's very easy in Austria to do so. You have to have two people, you have to have a constitution, that's it. So what happened was with the Islam Act of 2015, Muslims could only establish associations, religious associations, not anymore on the law based on the law of association, but only on the Islam Act of 2015, which at the very same time also implied that if they do so, they are under the governance of the Islamic religious society. So the Islam Act, on one hand, strengthened the state authorities vis-a-vis the Muslim community, and at the same time, on the other hand, it also strengthened the power of the Islamic religious society vis-a-vis every single Muslim NGO. Mm-hmm. So when you say Islamic religious society, is that sort of a formal body that exists? in? in yeah, that's a formal body. That's like a church. It's a, okay. in a way the Muslim church, yeah. It's like the Islamic community of Bosnia-Herzegovina. Right, absolutely. Something absolutely. like that, the official, the official organization. Yeah. yeah. I think that, you know, what, what is really problematic is what we've been speaking about before is, you know, this idea of creating this domestic version of Islam, mm-hmm. trying really to put everything under one umbrella. It's like there is no more freedom, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. And another aspect of the Islam Act was also to not allow financial support on a continuous level to happen from outside of Austria. So it was a way of trying to deconnect the Austrian Muslim community from the rest of the global Muslim community. Mm-hmm. While this is obviously not happening with the Catholics, who are the Catholic Church that is connected to the Vatican, to the Protestant Church, and every other religious community, which is always global, right? That's what they really achieved with the Islam Act of 2015, disconnecting them formally, financially, in terms of human resources, and so on and so forth, from the rest of the Muslim community. The nationalization of the Muslims, in a way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So tell us a bit about the reaction by different Muslim communities in Austria to that, to that new law. 
Well, I mean, uh, me as a uh, as a person who always uh, writes about these issues and speaks about that, I, I obviously became a strong critic of this act beyond also, I mean, publishing academic pieces on that. But I also like spoke out in the public, you know, on TV interviews, etc. What we could see is that the protest against this new act primarily came from the younger generation. And initially, the leadership of the Islamic Religious Authority was even in support of this Islam Act. Why? Because it gave them more power, right? Vis-a-vis the Muslim NGO world. Absolutely. Yeah, they gained more power. So for that generation, it's probably something positive (laughs) from that point of view. And that's created a whole new dynamic in, in, within the Muslim community because the, the protest really grew. And then also that created so much pressure on uh, the, the leadership of the relig- uh, Islamic religious uh, society that they basically formally also had to protest the, the act, which they were actually in charge of also co-writing and co-authoring, right, initially. Um, but at the end of the day, they accepted the act. And I mean, one of the issues was also that the Islam Act of 1912 only related to the Islamic religious society. The Islam Act of 2015 would govern every Islamic religious society that could also potentially be established in the future. So it, in a way, also it weakened the, the unique position of the Islamic religious society. That was an important renewal. Why? Because what happened was After 2015, a number of legislations were implemented by the Austrian government. You had the full-face whale ban in 2017, the the hijab ban in 2018, the closure of mosques in the name of fighting political Islam, which were actually part of the Islamic religious community, society. So a lot of legislations were brought through, and, and I think all of that could only happen with the Islam Act of 2015, because the Islam Act of 2015 weakened basically the position of the Islamic uh, religious society vis-a-vis the state authorities. Before 2015, whenever the government, the Austrian state, would put in place any legislation that touches upon Muslim religiosity in the public sphere, they had to go back to the Islamic religious society and ask them for their consent. That was not anymore the case after 2015. So in a way, it weakened their position so dramatically that a lot of these anti-Muslim legislations could even be put in place. So the state then became the ultimate arbiter on what is Islamic and what is acceptable and what is not, if if I'm understanding correctly. Yes, but it also diversified it, the authority of what is Islam and what not. Mm-hmm. Because then with the Islam Act of 2015, also the Elevai Islamic society was governed under this act. So you had two voices of what Islam is. And potentially there can be a third, a fourth, a fifth, because this was also one of the new aspects of this amendment. So you mentioned earlier, after that law in 2015, you mentioned that there was an attempt and uh, by the government to combat what it called political Islam and Muslim extremism. Can you tell us how did that happen after that 2015 law and what exactly was the government targeting? Yeah. Well, 
Um, I think the roots of this story actually go back to the protest against the Islam Act. Because what happened was when the Islam Act was discussed in the in the public and the, and the protest grew enormously, is that the government, or let's better say the conservative part of the government, Sebastian Kurz and his team, they started a whole campaign against so-called political Islam that basically targeted all of those who protested, like even people like me. So the idea was political Islam is kind of the bad Islam that we also have to kind of protect the, the rest of the Muslim community from. And it has never been defined. And I think that was one of the strengths also of this whole notion and how they could mobilize uh, so much on this uh, idea of fighting political Islam, because nobody really knew what, what political Islam really was. I give you just one example. I mean, when the hijab uh, was banned in school, which actually uh, later was resigned by the Constitutional Court. But at the moment when it was legitimized and, and implemented, this was done by arguing this is to fight political Islam. When several mosques were closed, that was again legitimized by saying that was a symbol of political Islam. So you could see in, in I mean, in, in the policies that were implemented, be it legislation, be it different measures, that were all tied to this combat against political Islam. Political Islam actually stands for a variety of things. It stands for organized Muslims. It stands for visibility of Islam in the public square. It stands for outspoken critique. And I think all of these aspects, you could argue, is what represents political Islam for the centrist right politics. Yeah, so we've zoomed in on Austria in this last part of our conversation, and obviously for the reasons that, uh, you know, that are understandable, you're from Austria, you know the situation so well, and I think our listeners will find it fascinating, all, all this conversation. Let's now zoom out a little bit and look at the rest of, of, of Europe. Do you find in other countries in Europe uh, similar things happening? What are some of the potential state-controlled policies that could adversely impact Muslims in those countries, where do you find this is the most difficult for the Muslims? And on the other hand, also, maybe, are there places in Europe where Muslims are free from these kind of interferences? I mean, though we have no ranking of, like, who is the most Islamophobic country in our <laughs> European Islamophobic report, um, and there's strong competition, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I would definitely say, I mean, I think one of the most horrible countries to live in is definitely France. And I think one of the most relaxed countries is maybe Portugal. And as a matter of fact, I mean, we always do like uh, on an annual level. I mean, I hope maybe some listeners are uh, specialized in Portugal, but, you know, we always do like a call for applications in order to for, for the authoring of, of our country report every year. And it's most difficult to find somebody from Portugal and because even the people from Portugal say like, oh, you know, there is not so much really to talk about when it comes to Islamophobia. I mean, so you, there is a long colonial legacy, right? But yes. a lot of, of the structures that you can find there. But still, yeah, I mean, coming back like seriously to your question, there is definitely a number of countries that are not only interested in implementing those policies on a domestic level, the Islamophobic policies, but they are really interested in making this the new mainstream for Europe. 
And you can see that very obviously with formal alliances. You know, just a few weeks ago or a month ago, pardon me, uh, there was a conference happening in Vienna, which was called the Vienna Forum, tackling the, the combat against political Islam. And the countries that were participating, I think, are, are those countries who, are, who also stand for these and represent these kinds of policies. Number one, France. There was a high-profile participation uh, from the Ministry of Interior. Um, then there was Denmark with the Minister of Education. And I would also include maybe Germany to some extent, but in a different way. Um, obviously, I mean, the crackdown on the Muslim civil society, the way that we witnessed it in Austria with the raids that happened in autumn 2020, that also happened uh, in France um, after the murder of Samuel Paty. Not only a lot of mosques were raided, but also the most important, uh, one of the most important anti-Muslim racist civil society organizations, CCIF, Collectif contre l'Islamophobie en France, which is the collective against Islamophobia in France, and which monitors Islamophobia, had to be closed, right, uh, by the Ministry of Interior, uh, alongside also other aid organizations. So I think in terms of the crackdown on Muslim civil society, Austria and France are really the, 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 the pioneering institutions in, uh, in respect to this issue. Then also the ghetto laws that, we, that you have in, in Denmark. And there are a lot of policies that have been implemented in recent times in the last two, three years that I think are very alarming, not only to, to Muslims in specific, because they are primarily and at this point of time targeting Muslims, but I think also in the way that this is questioning the whole idea of freedom of association, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. A lot of these policies, once they're implemented and tackling Muslims, tomorrow they can be expanded. And, and, and that was one of the things that I think we could also see very much in Austria. You know, when Chancellor Kurz back then, he's not Chancellor anymore, but when he abolished one of the Protestant holidays, his reaction in public was, you know, Protestants are only a three to four percent of the whole population. He, he just said, doesn't matter for a lot of people. You, you can see like this idea of freedom of religion, protecting minorities. There is no notion of this anymore. Because once you go against the weakest community, the Muslims, tomorrow you go after the second weakest. And then you can go forth uh, to one community and go after one community after the other. So yeah, I think there is this formal alliance of definitely of France and Austria, also with Denmark. And I think Germany is playing a crucial role here. It will be interesting to see how that develops now after 16 years of governance of the Christian Democratic Union, when we now have a social democratic chancellor. But I think a yeah. lot of the policies that were implemented in Germany are actually very similar. But the Germans just did it in a more clever way. And they did not have to fear such a fierce and mobilized reaction as it happened in Austria. And that's why they just did not become so infamous for that. Mm -hmm. But I think in many ways, a lot of the theology departments actually fulfill the best wishes of those dreams of, of state authorities trying to create their own domestic version of Islam, of German Islam. So, so far you've talked mostly about Western and Northern Europe, mm -hmm. but there is also emerging alliance in Central Eastern Europe, yeah. you know, with countries like Hungary and Slovakia and others. Viktor Orban seemed to be one of the people who is really gathering around himself uh, Islamophobes. And in terms of Central Eastern Europe, what is interesting to me is that the language seems to be a little bit 
different, but the aims and the objectives seem to be the same, which is to say that they're talking about demographic challenges to Europe, for instance, which obviously 99% of the time refers to Muslims. So can you comment on that as well, on what's going on in Central Eastern Europe? Sure. I think you're absolutely right, because uh, a lot of, especially the Eastern European countries, that's something a lot of people did not have any a clue about it. And I remember when we started the European Islamophobia report and including all these uh, Eastern uh, countries, that was actually very new to the whole debate. Why? Because obviously in many of these countries, I mean, if we put aside those countries where you have larger native Muslim communities like in Bulgaria or in Bosnia, obviously Muslims make like 0.0 something of a percentage of the whole population. So they are like non-existent, right? It's really small communities. But obviously what happened after 2014-15 when a civil war happened in Syria Iraq and you had a lot of influx of immigrants, there was a huge mobilization of these leaders, political leaders who were not from the far right, who were centrist right or centrist left, who said like, we, we can't have cities like Brussels or London or, or, or Cologne. We don't want to have those Muslims in here, right? That was the discourse. And I think on one hand, it allowed them to keep in power by mobilizing these fears and to not give any space to any far-right political party that would think of mobilizing as strong as they had already become in Western Europe. I think that was one of the main strategies behind that. The other thing is, I think that's also very problematic here, obviously because the east of Europe also means the border of the eastern side of the European Union, what we're witnessing these days in Poland, what we also, also witnessed in Hungary, keeping immigrants outside with the most violent means. That is also reproducing this idea of Europe being a Christian white continent and trying also not only not to let in any any of those people, but it's actually also a rewriting of the idea of what the rights of refugees are. A lot of European politicians from Central Europe, starting with Austria, the country I'm coming from, but also Eastern Europe. They actually, I mean, publicly discussed if we should not uh, get out of the Geneva Convention and rethink the whole idea of rights of refugees. And I think that's, that's again, a sign of a very authoritarian tendency that uh, should be an alarm to all those more democratic fractions within Europe, European society. And again, I think the Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurz played a crucial role in mobilizing the Eastern European countries and even trying to become kind of a leader of this more authoritarian camp within the European Union. And that's, again, I think something that is uh, very problematic in the whole development of where the European Union is heading to. I mean, currently they, they, they are not the most powerful camp, but still, I think it's, it's a problematic development. Well, thank you so much, Farid, for this wonderful, fascinating, if sobering conversation about Islam in Europe. It's a topic that is vast. Obviously, most of our conversation focused on Austria, uh, but what is happening there is also emblematic of what is going on much of the rest of Europe. So I really thank you for dedicating your time to being our guest. And I hope that at some point in future, we will revisit these topics and hopefully in, in, in better conditions for, for Muslims in Europe. Well, thank you for having me. It was an honor. 
Absolutely. You have listened to the sixth episode of Islam on the Edges of the Maidan podcast of Ali Wudal Ak Global Center for Islamic Studies at George Mason University. Thank you so much for listening and please join us again.